podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Tim Constant, a recent Doctor of Education degree recipient at the University of Michigan-Dearborn and the Instructional Coach for Secondary Education at Clarenceville School District in Livonia, Michigan. His dissertation focused on intergenerational historical trauma, like that experienced by indigenous communities around Indian boarding schools and teacher preparation. For his dissertation research, he worked with two public schools in Michigan, with some of the highest Native American student populations in Michigan. He's a certified K-12 school administrator and certified 6th through 12th grade social studies and English teacher with over 18 years' experience in public and private education as an elementary, middle, and high school principal, assistant principal, academic dean, and teacher. He has extensive experience in alternative education and working with students who have experienced trauma. Tim, would you mind uh, introducing yourself and share a few key moments that have been critical in your teaching journey? Yes, thank you, Tiffany. I am Tim Constant. I am a 2004 alum of the Masters of Arts in Teaching program at the University of Michigan in Dearborn, and just recently successfully defended my doctoral dissertation at the university with a concentration in curriculum and practice. I'm currently an instructional coach for secondary education at Clarenceville School District, which is the oldest school district in the state of Michigan, where I help support teachers by coaching them in highly effective instructional and planning practices, as well as provide feedback to teachers through classroom observations. I am also a board member for the Association for Constructivist Teaching, the Michigan Council for the Social Studies, and the University of Michigan-Dearborn Alumni Society Board, and also a member of the Royal Oak Public Schools Curriculum Advisory Committee. Yeah, your career and experience in education is quite extensive. What motivated you to pursue your doctorate? So I always wanted to uh, receive my doctorate, and I've always made excuses to not pursue it, too busy through my professional career and so forth. And so at the end of the 2016-17 school year as a principal, I decided it was time to retire, at least temporarily, from being a school administrator. And what I realized as an assistant principal and as a principal was that the day-to-day operations of being a school administrator takes away much opportunity for an administrator to be an effective educational leader in the building. So I wanted to discover a way to be able to change that. And I felt that going back to school, pursuing my doctorate, I would be able to get a better understanding of how an educational leader, a school leader could do that in addition to meeting all the mandatory expectations of a school leader. So for example, I was, as a principal, I attended a principal conference and there was a poll taken by the facilitator of the conference of all the principals. And one of the questions was, what percentage of your time is spent on curriculum, instruction, supporting teachers. And it was really interesting that the principals said that 20% of their time was spent focusing on curriculum and instruction with 80% of their time 
spent on dealing with disciplinary issues, HR issues, logistical issues with running a building. So that really interested me in pursuing some of those answers to those questions through a doctorate program. And I also wanted to do some research in trauma-informed instructional practices, which was something that I'm really passionate about and something that I have a lot of experience in through working as a teacher and as a school administrator in different school districts with students that have a considerable amount of trauma. Thanks for that. Through your PhD, what were some of the strategies where you're considering applying to flip the percentages? So 20% curriculum, 80% disciplinary HR seems backwards. And I think that's what you were pointing out. What can leaders do to shift that dynamic? Reshifting the priorities, really, and getting an understanding of the capacity of a building and what experience you have in that building among your teachers, among your support staff, and leveraging that expertise, those experiences. School administrators understanding that they are not able to be a effective school leader by trying to take on everything themselves and understanding how to be able to delegate certain tasks to to people so they can then focus on flipping that and making 80% of their time focused on instructional practices and curriculum and how to better support teachers and getting in the classrooms and conducting observations and providing feedback to the teachers. And so that's an important focus and strategy for school administrators to be able to do, to be able to flip that 80-20 with 80% now being focused on really what they should be focused on to be a educational leader in the building. I think that's a good lesson for all leaders, and not just within the educational context. You mentioned trauma experienced by students. When you think about the stories you've heard from students, how do the real experiences that you've had with students impact your work as a teacher and school leader? Yeah, it's impacted everything that I do. It really has. And I'll give you a specific example of a story of a student that I had when I was a teacher in my very first school district in the city of Detroit. We were coming back from a Christmas and New Year break, so our two-week break, and students were returning, and I was asking students, how was their break? You know, how was their Christmas, their New Year, or just their break if they don't celebrate Christmas? And a student came up to me and was very excited and said, Mr. Constant, I'm really, really excited because I got the best gift during the holiday. And he explained to me that the gift that he had received was a window. And I paused and I was like, a window? And he said, yes. He goes, my bedroom is in the attic of the house, and there's just a hole where a window should be. And I received a window as a Christmas gift. And so now I'll be able to stay warmer. That is just one of many stories like that of students that I worked with as a teacher, that I worked with as a school administrator, that helped me to focus not on just empathy, but compassion. And so I'm always thinking of those student stories and using that to drive my instruction as a teacher, to drive my decisions and my pedagogical approaches as a school administrator. So it's that taking it 
not just with empathy, but focusing on the next step beyond empathy, teaching and leading with compassion. The story really puts it into perspective the disparities of students and what they're bringing into the classroom. What does compassion look like in the classroom for a student who is living in conditions that are less than ideal? It's listening to students. It's understanding their situations. It is being flexible with regards to expectations in the classroom, with regards to it could be deadlines for assignments. It's providing that flexibility in planning lessons and delivering lessons that are not just academic, but they're also focused on the social and emotional part of teaching. So in providing Safety. Safety, I think, is is key. Social and emotional safety, physical safety, to where students want to come to school. They want to come to your classroom because they feel this warmth. They feel this invitation that they can come in and it's a safe place physically, socially, and emotionally. And that's the only way that learning is going to be able to occur is providing that type of environment for students. And it should be for all students, but especially for students that have experienced some form of trauma. That is really important because it provides them that safety, that stability that they need. I read a bit about your dissertation and how it's focused on intergenerational trauma. Can you describe intergenerational trauma, what it is, and communities that are often affected by it? Intergenerational trauma is trauma that is referred to as unresolved trauma. And what that means is at the time the trauma has been experienced, it's not dealt with. It's not resolved at the time. And so then what happens is it transfers from one generation to another. And as it transfers from one generation to another, it escalates in its severity. So for example, there is something called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Pyramid, the ACEs Pyramid, that was developed by the Centers for Disease Control. And the foundation of that pyramid is historical trauma. It's the conception of trauma. And then what happens is because it's unresolved and that trauma carries over from generation to generation, Through research, they have discovered that trauma then leads to social conditions. It leads to social, emotional, and cognitive impairments. It can lead to disease and social problems. And they've also have discovered it can lead to an early death because of behaviors and lifestyles of people that have experienced historical trauma. And so the populations that have really experienced a lot of historical trauma, one being indigenous communities. So tribal communities have experienced it through colonization and through attempted assimilation through the Indian boarding school movement of the 1800s and the 1900s. Trauma from those experiences has transferred from one generation to another. One of the things that's interesting is the origins of historical trauma research actually is from 1960s clinical research from Holocaust survivors. 
there was a study, there was numerous studies that was done regarding how the trauma experience from Holocaust survivors has transferred to the children of Holocaust survivors. So that's really the origins of that research. And one of the things that's also unique about historical trauma, it has a genocidal and ethnocidal tendency to it. So for example, the Indian boarding schools and the attempted assimilation of Indian children and the Holocaust, which is genocidal. With your own research, what was the focus of your dissertation? So the focus of my dissertation was looking at the phenomenon of teacher confidence and competence in historical trauma-informed practices, specifically related to teachers that teach in schools with a high Native American student population. And I wanted to take a look at what training and supports have been provided to teachers in the past. And did that provide any confidence? Did it provide this feeling of competence in working with students that come from a community that has historical trauma, that has trauma that has transferred from generation to generation? Sorry, pause there after your definition of intergenerational trauma, because it reminds me a lot of chattel slavery as well and the impact of slavery on African-Americans in the U.S. and assimilation of many different cultures in the U.S. The focus on Indian boarding schools is very unique, and it's something I hadn't even heard of before reading about your dissertation. What is the legacy of Indian boarding schools nationally and in the state of Michigan? Yeah, it's really interesting because my initial approach to the dissertation was not initially to focus on this area of history. And when I was the Associate Director of Teacher Education at the Holocaust Memorial Center in Farmington Hills, Michigan, I was traveling to the northern area of the state of Michigan, and I was conducting a two-day teacher workshop in Holocaust education. And we were on break, and a teacher came up to me and had asked me, what's your focus of your research in the doctoral program? And I said, well, it's going to be on trauma-informed instructional practices. And this teacher stated, have you thought about intergenerational trauma, and have you thought about trauma related to the Indian boarding schools? And I said, no, I don't know a lot of history about the boarding schools. And he explained to me that there were three Indian boarding schools in the state of Michigan. There were across the country over 350 at one time with the focus of assimilation, with the focus of this forced relocation of Indian children to these boarding schools with the focus of stripping them of their culture, their language, their beliefs, their traditions, and to assimilate them into this Euro-American culture. And to then, hopefully, their intent was they would return back to their tribal community and being assimilated in this Euro-American way would then transfer into the community. I didn't realize the boarding schools, how traumatic they were. Students were physically abused and emotionally abused, sexually abused. Some students ended up not returning back to their community. Some students, we don't know what happened to them. And now there's been some discoveries of mass graves at some of these boarding school sites. 
We know that some students had perished due to disease and illness, malnutrition. And so that was very traumatic. The last boarding school in the state of Michigan closed in the 1980s. And so this is an ancient history. The current students in these schools, some of their grandparents may have been students at these schools. The legacy of these schools, it has created this tremendous distrust of the education system because they associate the education system as the system that attempted to assimilate them, to take away their tradition, their cultures, their language. And so that is what makes this so traumatic. This is an ancient history. Those stories are continuing throughout the tribal communities of these atrocities, and there is this now tremendous mistrust of education because education was used as a strategy of assimilation. You're talking about only 39 years ago. That's quite shocking that these schools were in existence 39 years ago within our lifetimes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's really shocking. And that was something that really surprised me. And one of the things that also surprised me was how deeply rooted this trauma is among the tribal communities. And so when I had started this research, members of the tribal communities that I spoke to said I would have a challenging time with getting people probably to participate and to talk about this because it's so painful. Mm -hmm. But at the end of one of the focus groups of one of the participating schools, a teacher who is from one of the tribal communities, when we were doing a reflection, said he was so appreciative of somebody bringing up this conversation, having the opportunity to have this conversation and to explore this and how this trauma is among their student body, among their community, and how to best train and prepare teachers to understand this history and what are the strategies they can use in their classroom to be able to help best support the students. Sure. Yeah, it sounds like you were able to build an incredible amount of trust with the community to be able to conduct your research. When you think back, what were some of the strategies you used to do that? I took an indigenous research approach, and what I mean by that is I started with having conversations with key members of the tribal communities, trusted members of the tribal communities who were incredible advisors and told me how to approach this topic, what to say, things that I should be concerned about. And one of the things that they had explained to me is in designing this research, it was important to design it in an indigenous way. And what that means is there is a very personal conversational approach to indigenous research and and indigenous pedagogy. And so that's why things such as focus groups, one-on-one teacher interviews, those are important versus having just a survey. And a survey was part of the research methodology, but the most powerful component of the research was the focus groups 
in the teacher interviews. And focus groups are very similar to talking circles mm-hmm. among Indigenous communities and the way that history is taught and the way that issues are discussed. And so taking that approach help to be able to build trust among the community. And I was very, very fortunate because the community was very honest. They were very transparent during the research. And it was a very powerful experience. They trusted me with that information. Mm -hmm. From all of your learnings from this, in an ideal world, what would teacher preparation look like to have a positive impact in intergenerational trauma? There was a number of really key findings to the research, and one of the findings was teachers had received trauma-informed training in the past, but one of the concerns of teachers was the training was not applicable. It was not specific to American Indian students and historical trauma among the tribal communities. And so one of the recommendations of the teachers was future training needs to involve specific strategies regarding historical trauma, strategies regarding historical trauma among tribal communities. It should also teach the history of the boarding schools. It should teach a history of colonization and an attempted assimilation. They had also expressed that the training that they had received was sporadic. So they said it was a one and done. And it had been years since they had received any form of training in trauma. So one of the recommendations of teachers was not only to provide specific training in historical trauma and providing a history of the root cause of that trauma and strategies to use, but for it to be continuous. It's just not a one and done. That This is a series of training, an ongoing training. And they would talk about how to implement these strategies and then implement them and then reflect on the implementation. And then also how to involve the tribal community and tap into the capital, into the assets of the tribal communities to improve community engagement was something that was also really key to help with training teachers. Teachers said that that would build their confidence and their feeling of competence in historical trauma-informed practices. It seems like your research could be applicable to many communities that have experienced intergenerational trauma. Have you thought about how your approach could be extended in other community-focused ways to address intergenerational trauma? Yes, I have. So throughout the entire research, I was constantly thinking about that, and I had so many aha moments regarding the findings where I was like, wow, this could apply to multiple communities. And a specific example of that is this idea of safety. I had mentioned the importance of providing a safe learning environment for students, but one of the key findings from the research was safety from the perspective of teachers. Mm -hmm. And quite a number of teachers had said they did not feel safe because they had not been properly trained and supported in how to use historical trauma-informed strategies. What is the history that is the root cause of this trauma? Teachers 
had this feeling and this concern regarding safety because they were concerned that they may traumatize or re-traumatize students if they don't have the proper training and experience and support in historical trauma-informed practices. And so I thought that was really interesting how that could apply to teachers in other communities. And the idea of the importance of understanding the history of trauma within a community and how to be able to engage that community in helping better to train and support teachers in the history of that trauma and what strategies to use. I can see that this can apply to many communities that have a historical trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, in general, um, how can those of us who are members of our community support Indigenous students and educators? So I think that the best way to be able to help support and apply things regarding everyday actions to be able to help address intergenerational trauma really is to be more informed, to be able to be more culturally responsive and relevant and have this humility that we need to learn more about how historical trauma can affect a community, how deeply rooted that it is and how it can transfer from one generation to another. And then to ask members of a community that has been traumatized, that has this historical trauma, what can we do to be able to help provide better support? And so again, it's coming down to this focus on community and community engagement and community working together to be able to to make improvements. Mm-hmm. And really prioritizing the voice of those that we're trying to support. Absolutely. I was in a training session yesterday of indigenous leaders in higher education. And one of the presenters had talked about data, population data, mm-hmm. and had mentioned that indigenous communities are often referred to as the asterisk nation. And what she meant by that was because indigenous communities are such a small percentage of the overall community, a lot of times these conversations, a lot of times research, uh, a lot of time resources are not directed to those communities, which therefore further marginalizes communities Mm -hmm. because they're a smaller percentage of the overall community. And she had referred to tribal communities as as the asterisk nation because a lot of times regarding data, if there's not enough data, then there's an asterisk that states in research not enough data to report numbers, Mm -hmm. right? And so that just further marginalizes communities. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I thought that was really, really interesting and something that I never thought of until she had mentioned it, that further marginalizes them. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective towards the overall challenge. We face that even at U of M with smaller populations where they're overlooked because the population isn't large enough to report on. And so I know exactly what you're talking about with that asterisk. It's a really interesting way to phrase the challenge, though. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that's also very challenging is the idea of 
you want to focus on how to be able to better support populations that are marginalized, but in that process, making sure not to marginalize other groups of people. That can also happen Mm -hmm. when focus and resources goes towards a particular area. We want to make sure that we're not in the sense of school. We want to make sure if we're focusing on how to better support our American Indian students, we also want to make sure that we're not then taking resources or marginalizing other groups of students as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a great quote from an ed professor when I was in graduate school, and he said something along the lines of, when you improve curriculum for the better to make it more accessible and flexible, you actually improve the curriculum for all. And I think there's real power in the work that you're doing and changing pedagogy and changing curriculum and teacher mindset. Because if they do make it more flexible, it's going to benefit more than just the community of interest, but it'll help all students. Absolutely it will. Now, you finished your PhD in a really interesting era here throughout a pandemic. What type of self-care and stress reduction strategies did you use to stay focused and to reach your goals in this period of chaos, it feels like? I've always approached any situation with a positive mindset. And what I mean by that is, okay, everything is shutting down. We're having to stay home more often and not able to see friends, family, loved ones. And how can I use that to really kind of take advantage of that opportunity in that time. And so I focused on really what I could control. And one of the things that I did was took advantage of all the time being able to stay at home to focus on my research and focus on the coursework in the doctoral program. So it worked out really, really well. And one of the things I also did is I focused a lot on for self-care and stress reduction, I focused a lot on controlling the amount of information and news that I received. Mm. Because we're in an era where we can get an unlimited amount of information very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so if you search the internet, if you turn down the television, you can receive a lot of negative news. So I tried to control that information, shutting off the TV, not searching the internet for news, turning off notifications, push notifications regarding news that would go to my phone. That really helped me with self-care and stress reduction, was really mindfully controlling the amount of information and news that I received. And It helped me to focus more on my coursework and on my research and doing things such as taking more walks and really appreciating those small things that I probably took advantage of prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now final question here. We all learn stuff through the PhD program. If you could tell your younger self before you started the PhD one thing, what would it be? I think it would be the importance of managing your time and understanding how to be able to organize all of the information that you need to organize and keep track of. That's something that's really important. I read a book that somebody wrote with regards to 
how to survive a doctoral program. And each program is unique. Each program is different. And the one thing that I really focused on was really trying to stay more organized and be able to also trust the process too. This is the doctoral process. It's an old process. It's been around for many, many years and to understand the importance of leaning on and trusting the chair of your committee and your committee members and listening to their recommendations and their advice and understanding that they have a wealth of experience and to trust them and lean on them. Tim, it has been a true pleasure getting to speak to you today and learning about your research. It really has inspired a lot of thought on my own part about how I can do more to better understand trauma in the community, intergenerational trauma, and the role that CEW can play. And I so appreciate your time and your energy today. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi. 